Be seated. Children can make your way to Children's Church, please. Kids, make your way on back there. Workers as well. It's great to have everybody here. Appreciate your commitment to uh, the church service this morning and to your church family today. I would like, before we open our Bibles, I would like to do something that's a little bit different because it will help lay a foundation for what we're going to be talking about in God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to take your songbook, if you will. Should be a hymnal in front of you for most of you. And turn to uh, number, well, I thought I had it down here. Oh, 306, number 306. <clears throat> I'm not one that, that gets on tangents very much. Um, in fact, there's very, very few things that I like to get on a soapbox about and kind of spout off louder than normal about. And this is not one of those. So I'm going to mention something that might strike a chord with some of you, but I thought it would be helpful as we prepare for our message today to look at one aspect in particular and it's about the song alas and did my savior bleed some of you think of this as at the cross which oftentimes we'll go into as a chorus because there is a desire to a want a lot of times in our world to make our sin not quite so bad we like that idea People will use the word mistake instead of the word sin. Have you ever heard somebody do that before? You want to say, no, let's call it what it is. Let's call it a sin or a choice. There is something that even takes place in some song lyrics, and I'm not complaining about this, but I think there is a benefit oftentimes to using um, the words in a previous verse. So in number 306 in your songbook, Alas and did my Savior bleed, And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Now let me give a test for all of you who might have grown up in church. There used to be a different set of words there instead of the word sinners. Anybody remember what those words were? You remember? Say it out loud if you know it. Such a worm worm as I. That's that's kind of offensive. (laughs) I mean, if I'm I mean if I'm talking to you. And I'm laying it out there, and I'm letting you know that you, you were pretty much a worm. That's maybe going to be a more serious conversation than you thought we were going to have. And yet I think in the original words of that song, it was trying to send a very specific message. I'm not going off on a tangent. I'm not going to require you to always substitute the words. But I would for, like, like for us to sing just the first verse of this. And I'd like for us to substitute the words for such a worm as I. And then we'll even go into the chorus at the cross. Would you sing that with me a cappella? Let's sing together. And remember to substitute those words such a worm. Here we go. Alas, and did my Savior bow with me in prayer one more time 
Gracious Father, we would come to you with these words in mind as well as the other words that we have put to song this morning. We would ask that you would allow us to have a right view of ourselves. We would ask that you would allow us to have a correct view of you and your Son and the Holy Spirit. And God, we would ask for your wisdom now as we open your wonderful and perfect word. May it change us in what we think and how we feel and how we act. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you get into conversations with a variety of people about some topics, it's very interesting the different ideas and opinions that some are going to have. You can bring up a topic and someone that you're talking to might have a very, very different outlook on that topic. I'd like to start with a topic like that because I think there might be a variety of thoughts that would come to the minds of those that would hear it this morning. I want you to imagine you're driving in your car and you come up maybe off of the interstate and as you pull up there, you see an individual standing on the side of the road and they've got a sign that's asking for money, asking for financial help. Maybe some of you have seen a variety of signs. Some might say, my family needs food. Some might say, a veteran of the military. They would use different words to try to convince individuals to give them some money. And I wonder what might come to your mind when you see that. I know some of you might be very skeptical when you see an individual that's asking for that. I I can remember very clearly uh, an interview between two um, famous sports figures, and they were walking down the street, and one of them was going to give some money out to someone that was begging for money. And his friend, who's a millionaire, smacked his hand. And he said, don't do that. He said, "You're, you're encouraging him not to work. And he gave his philosophy on it and I wonder what your thoughts are when you see that I can remember years ago when someone helped me I had a flat tire um, in the Chicago area and someone helped me change a tire and I can remember wanting to help them out and being conflicted wondering if I gave them some cash what was that cash going to go towards and that little bit within me that wanted to even have some control after I gave him that little bit of help in exchange for what he did for me. What might come to your mind when you think of a beggar? When you think of someone like that, maybe because we live in America, you have a very specific picture in your mind. But I'm going to ask us today to have a very intentional picture of what a beggar is, and it might be different than what you have in your mind when you think of someone who is begging. And we'll get to in, into some of the specifics of that as we jump into God's Word and continue our series in the Beatitudes. What are we going to see from this passage? Really a very short passage that we're going to look at today and even over the next several weeks. We'll cover a short verse. But what will we learn from this passage today? Well, it's my hope that some of you will have cemented within you the security that God holds you in His hand and nothing can take you out if, in fact, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because I know from experience and from talking to individual after individual that doubts can come. The devil is so good at getting us to doubt the work that God has done on our behalf. And so eternal security might be one area that you would be encouraged with today. 
And also, a little bit towards the end, it's, it's been my prayer this morning that you would have a unique and more special look at the kindness of Jesus Christ towards you, the love, the incredible price that was paid in the love that God has shown to you. I'm hoping that's where we will land as we look at this first beatitude today. All that to bring us to our text. If you're not already there, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. If um, you don't have a Bible, there should be a pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible of your own, please take that pew Bible and keep it as our gift to you. It's a wonderful um, source for you, and that will help you to follow along. Now let me say before I read verse number 3 of Matthew 5, that what we are jumping into here is, and some of you uh, may never have thought about this before, it's not Jesus' first teaching, but it is Jesus' first recorded teaching. And there are no accidents. So you need to understand that when we come across Matthew chapter 5 and jump into this first of the Beatitudes, this is the very first recorded teaching that we find of Jesus Christ. And I think you should pay attention to that. It's going to be helpful if you will understand that this is where Jesus starts. Now, he had taught before. Last week we saw in chapter 4 that he was doing three things. He was teaching, he was healing, and he was preaching the gospel. So those are things that he had been doing. You can see that just a few verses earlier. I'm going to back up to verse number 1 of Matthew 5 and read those first three verses. Seeing the crowds, he went on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're taking notes, it's going to be really easy for you to follow along because we're going to have two main points in each one of these Beatitudes, and the first one is the role, all right? What is the role that we find here? Blessed, the Bible says. Incredible happiness is going to come to the poor in spirit. The first step for every man and every woman to make towards God, towards eternal life, is going to be spiritual bankruptcy. And that's tough for many people especially, as Jesus Christ said, for people who have a whole lot of earthly possessions or earthly talents. This is a really difficult lesson for so many. And I ask you to pay attention to the location of this. This is right at the beginning. Jesus Christ makes this the first recorded teaching that we have for ourselves today. And I think there's a great reason for why it's at the beginning. Now, we have a variety of folks here that have different backgrounds. Some of you are handy kind of people, men and women. Some of you are very good around tools. Some of you are very good around ladders. In fact, I know a few folks who have climbed high on ladders even in this room, and I appreciate that. I'm not great on ladders myself. In fact, I got some counsel from my son. I was doing some painting in a high area of our house, and as I was really high on the ladder, my leg was just shaking, shaking, shaking. And he said, your leg's shaking, Dad, just like that. And I said, I know my leg's shaking, son. I know it. Just be quiet over there. Well, more recently, even in the past few weeks, we had a beautiful, clear day after the Christmas holiday. It was a Saturday, 
And I said, well, let's get the Christmas lights down. This would be the day to do it. Might not get another day until maybe March or April, maybe May, sometimes in Michigan, right? Until we get another warm day. And so I put uh, the extension ladder out and leaned it up against the house. And we've got a peak on our garage. And just in case you want to judge me, it's probably about 18 feet high. It's not all that high when you're standing down the ground. It doesn't look all that high anyway. But once you get up there on top of that ladder, it feels awfully high. And once you're stretching as far as you can reach, it feels awfully high. And I can remember last year when I was taking those Christmas lights down and I was up at the top and there was a wind that came whipping around the corner. And I just leaned in and I prayed. Have you guys ever prayed about the weather? I prayed about the weather. I said, oh Lord, please stop that wind just like that. I thought I was gonna go over. This year, I had somebody holding that ladder both times when, when I went up and went down. No matter if you're using a small ladder inside the house to reach a high shelf, or whether you're going to try to go to the peak of your house and reach as high as you can, every ladder has one thing in common. There is a low first step. If that low first step was not there, then you would not get very far. Some people might be able to finagle their way up a few feet without that low first step. But every ladder that I have come across has that low first step. If a ladder is going to be any help to us, the first step needs to be near the ground for the climbers to make any use of it. I don't want to jump ahead too much, but can you imagine if Jesus Christ started his teaching And he said to them, so here's the disciples listening, and here's the crowd, the multitude, who aren't the main audience, but do you think they were leaning in to hear Jesus? Remember, he still had his popularity. He hadn't offended everybody quite yet. And so everybody is listening to what he has to say. Can you imagine if his very first lesson in these Beatitudes was this? Blessed are those who are pure in heart. That wasn't his first message. You can imagine this crowd of people who had heard a message from the religious leaders for their entire life and probably their parents' life about how good those religious leaders were and how how far they fall short. And if the first message would have been, you need to be pure in heart, that would have taken the wind right out of the sails of so many of them. And so Jesus Christ, very specifically, very intentionally, does not begin with you have to do something. The Christian life is not something that you will do necessarily, but instead Jesus Christ, as he teaches this group, he begins with a recognition of this. There is nothing that you can do for this first step to begin this journey with God. You have to be nothing in order to be something. The Christian lesson, the Christian message, the Bible is full of paradoxes. We find that a man has to become a fool in order that he may become what? Wise. We find the Bible teaches that in order to save save one's life, you have to lose it. We also find that in order to become rich, you become rich by being poor. These are some of the struggles for individuals as they read God's word And what Jesus Christ does is he lays bare the poverty 
that must be there for any man and any woman that will come to God for forgiveness. There will be no ability to hang on to any self-righteousness I have on my, of my own. No one can grab their family tree and say, I'm pleasing to God because of my parents. I remember when I heard the expression, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Has anybody heard that before? It confused me the first time I heard it. God doesn't have any grandchildren. What's that supposed to mean? It means God only has children. It means if there's someone who's a child of God, their kids don't get into heaven. Everyone has to become a child, a son, or a daughter of God. And if I can use the Old Testament illustration like Moses, it's such a vivid picture and they refer to it so often in the Bible of Moses standing at the edge of the Red Sea and he had taken these two to three million people with him out of slavery and then we find Pharaoh's heart had been changed again by God and Pharaoh with his armies chasing after Moses. It seems like they are trapped and they're going to be killed or taken back in slavery and as they are standing there with this huge sea in front of them, there is nothing that Moses can do to save those people. He literally has to stand there and say, God, you have to do it. And he faces that sea and God parts those waters and God saves those people. And it wasn't because Moses was uh, an aquatic expert. That wasn't why it happened. And it wasn't because they had a bridge and it wasn't because they had boats. It was because they found themselves in a spot where only God could help, and God did. I don't go into the original languages too often um, with this, but there's one word that I wanted to jump into to give you some background on this because the Bible actually uses different words for the word beggar, all right? Or the word poor in spirit is the one we're looking at today. And that Greek word is toikos, Toikos, T-O-K-O-S, if, if I can use the English equivalent for that. And this word toikos is the idea of begging out of shame. That's the message that Jesus gives when he preaches here. You have to come as a beggar, and you have to be begging out of shame. Now, I started off by asking you, you what you thought of when you see someone who's looking for a handout. And I know there were a variety of opinions that popped into the minds of folks hearing that question. What do you think of? Some of you maybe think somebody's a shyster, or maybe they think that they're lazy, or they've got some kind of an addiction or habit they're trying to feed. You can have all kinds of thoughts, but Jesus makes no mistake here when he uses this word toikos. It is talking about an utter spiritual bankruptcy. So bankruptcy is step one to having eternal life. And it begins with an utter spiritual bankruptcy. So this word toikos, this beggar who is begging out of shame, he has no other option to eat that day or the next except for to ask for a handout. He doesn't have a family he can go to that's going to give from their abundance. This individual doesn't have a trade that they could go and do that instead, but they're choosing to beg instead. They don't have that. They don't have some resources that are stocked up. They don't have the physical ability to go and even dig ditches and make some money that way. The picture that Jesus gives when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, is they have absolutely no way to obtain food to keep themselves alive. 
no way to obtain any money except for to beg. Here's the idea. You are completely dependent upon the gifts of others to make it. Anything that you have has come from an outside source. This is the way that we come to God in the first place. This is how we get eternal life. Not holding anything in our hand. If I can use this illustration, um, oftentimes when we think of a, a sports draft, so maybe the NFL is having their draft or the NBA is having their draft, they'll look at what the different players have to offer. And I think there are some individuals in this world that think that if God saves them and lets them into his kingdom, it's because they were bringing something to the table. Well, of course God's going to pick me. I'm so gifted in this way. God's going to want me on his team. That's why I've been a Christian for my whole life. And the individual that thinks that doesn't understand this idea of what an individual needs to be. The Pharisees in Christ's day, they did not understand this idea. They thought they were bringing all kinds of things to the table. And Jesus Christ, as he sits down and speaks, he says, you want to enter into the kingdom of God? This is where you start. This is where it begins. And it really is a shocking message because of the comparison. When you compare this to the message that the religious leaders had given them so much, it's shocking because they had been looked down upon, the, the common people. They were never good enough. They were being compared to these religious elites. And so it's a shocking message when Jesus says, happy are the people who have nothing. Those are the ones that are going to make it into the kingdom of God and have this incredible joy and happiness. I think one of the best illustrations that I have come across of this teaching is found in Luke chapter 18. And if you'd like to turn there, I'd invite you to do that. I'm going to read several verses from Luke chapter 18. And when we look at Luke 18 and a common way that Christ taught through parables, we see a lesson that would be very clear for them. Now, while you're turning there, let me go ahead and give you the spirit and the attitude of the Pharisees because the Pharisees did not have any interest in the righteousness of God. Instead, they wanted their own righteousness to be enough. Romans 10 tells us this, where it says, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So the religious leaders, those Pharisees, they did not need that. And we have a beautiful picture for it in Luke chapter 18. Let me go ahead and turn there along with you. Luke chapter 18, I'll read verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now before I read it, let me just explain those two terms. I've already talked about a Pharisee quite a bit. These were the ones that were the religious leaders. They were the ones that had quite a bit of control. I think even um, politically they had some control, a lot of influence which if you go to study when Christ was crucified, you'll see some of that displayed there. But the other individual in this parable is a tax collector. Now, when you think of tax collector, you need to get the idea of, of a, an IRS agent out of your head, all right? 
It's not just that maybe he was okay, maybe he wasn't. When, when this parable is told and the idea of a tax collector is given, this is the worst of the worst of people that aren't in jail. All right? When Jesus talks about a Pharisee and a tax collector, this tax collector is one who really has betrayed his own people. He's betrayed the Jews to get rich off of them, dishonest, and everybody knew it, and they knew it. Of course, a famous one like Zacchaeus comes to mind, and God can save anybody. But understand, when we have this picture of these two men side by side, Jesus is trying to paint a vivid picture. Look at verse 9 with me of Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, said the Pharisee. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The attitude of this tax collector versus the Pharisee. You can just see one of them says, I am not adding anything to what God has. And the other one is, God, I kind of got this coming. I've kind of got your blessing in your kingdom coming to me. The first step is spiritual bankruptcy. And I would just add to that, Jesus Christ will never genuinely be precious to you until you understand that you had nothing to offer and he gave everything for you. That's why his name will be so precious to you. That's why a tear will come to your eye. When you will sing a song, you'll lose yourself. What the cross means to you and me, his blood was the only way. Number one is the role. Number two is the reward. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I see two things. First of all, eternal security. You can be confident that you are God's and that no man, no thing, no power, no demon can take you out of God's hand. If you didn't do anything to get eternal life, you can't do anything to lose eternal life. And when we come to God, the reward is eternal security, but the reward is also a present security. Because if you're hearing me say this today, you understand that God did not save you just for eternal life, but he saved you for the now and now. He saved you in this present world. And he doesn't want you miserable. He doesn't want you so unhappy and wondering why in the world that you are here. 
There is a present security that comes as a result of those who are poor in spirit. And so blessed happiness. And then he says, for theirs is eternal life or the kingdom of heaven. The pronouncement is made. The man or the woman that is poor in spirit, to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. I am glad for that eternal security. I'm thrilled for that message. There are some uh, themes that will come through in, in Western movies that will stick. And you'll see it even as they, write, they would write more Western movies. They would repeat that. There's a famous line when some gunslinger was pointing a gun at another gunslinger and he had the drop on him and he was about to do him in. And he would say these lines, prepare to meet your maker, just like that. So we gave him a second. How long do you need to meet your maker as they were going on in that movie? And I am thrilled that I can wake up every day not wondering what I have to do to meet my maker. That security is settled not because of anything that I have done, but because I could not do anything. I was laid bare, had nothing to offer to the king. I'm just a beggar in the presence of a king who gives to me generously, who gives to me out of his love, not because I deserved it, not because my parents did such a great job, not because I have so many gifts and talents, not because I put money to a good cause. Nothing In my hand I bring only to thy cross I cling. It's not something that we do. I can remember a professor of mine in graduate school and he said this line and I, I doubted his authenticity. I always listen for exaggeration. I hate exaggeration, by the way. I think you lose credibility if you exaggerate. And he said this as he was teaching our class. When I was young, I asked God to save me thousands and thousands of times. And my first thought was, really? You know, because I'm thinking, how many do I have racked up where I doubted my salvation? Five, a dozen, thousands of times. And he expanded on that. He was a preacher's kid. And he said, I would lie in bed and literally I was thinking it was something that I could do. And I would say, God, please save me. God, please forgive me. He would lie in bed afraid that he was going to go to hell and over and over again. And hopefully one of those would take, right? Kind of the shotgun method. Maybe one of them will hit the mark. And he was missing it. When we have an understanding that it's nothing that we bring, and God pricks our heart and allows us to understand that we can't bring anything to the table, and it's only he that does that work. And this beatitude says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The eternal security is wonderful, but let me just go ahead and point to us that this says happy are, present tense. So the happiness is going to come, yes, in God's kingdom, but there's also happiness that is available today in this present world. There is both a future aspect and a right now aspect to this lesson. And for you and me, it is when we are emptied of something that we can be filled with something. The riches that God has for you. So don't just think of eternal life. Don't just think of after this present world. Think of today. 
Not just life, but life abundant. So what are we supposed to do with this? How is this a blessing and an encouragement to us even 2,000 years later? What can you do? Well, here's some takeaways for us before we close. Number one, live the Christian life the same way that you got it. Trusting God and praising God for the good that would come from you. So if you're not saved today, that's why oftentimes on a Sunday I will say today can be that day of salvation. But if you think you've got to check some boxes and do these things in order to win God's favor, you're missing it. Jesus Christ said you have nothing to offer. Every one of us has a different background. But every one of us will have to come to that same place where we realize we cannot bring anything to God. And when we recognize that and recognize the price was paid, Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins because he loved you so that you could have eternal life, but also you could have life abundant even today. So live the Christian life the same way that you got it. You didn't do anything for it. And God continues to bless. So praise God and trust him. And then next, walk with confidence in the power and kindness of Christ. You should walk with a confidence. You should not be so worried about dying. I have stood in the hospital room at the bedside of multiple individuals. I can remember vividly watching one man in Illinois as he was approaching a very serious surgery, weeping uncontrollably. And he did not share with me, I'm not sure if I'm going to go to heaven. But that's what those tears, that's the message those tears were sending to me. He was so afraid that he would die. I've seen others who were approaching death. It's a sure thing within not too long of a time. In fact, I've got a friend here in town. He's a follower of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know exactly how many days he has left, but he knows it's not very many. And he doesn't walk through nervous. He doesn't walk through scared because he has a confidence in the love of Christ that God reached out and offered this to him. Walk with a confidence in the power of Christ. There is nothing stronger. It is only that that can save us, but also the kindness of Christ. And if, and if I could beg your attention just for another couple minutes, I want to ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, I came across this just a couple days ago. And this is the beautiful picture of not just knowing that your eternal life is secure, but that God has something going on for you today. In Ephesians chapter 2, and of course we just finished a study of Ephesians. That was our last series that we did here. In Ephesians chapter 2, we find in the first three chapters of Ephesians a vivid picture being painted of what we have in Jesus Christ. And there's one word that we're leading to that I want to focus on. I'm going to start right in the middle of a, well, we'll start at verse number four and read down a few verses. Ephesians 2, starting in verse four, says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Have you seen that picture today? 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That kindness is available to you every day. And this picture that anything that you get from God is his kindness and his mercy and you don't deserve it. You need to hold on to that because even if someone does know Jesus Christ as their Savior, the devil sneaks in and I think that the biggest sin that he sneaks in with is the sin of pride. And he will try to get you, even if he can't have your soul, he will try to get you to think that maybe you're all that, right? You add something to the team. Look what you are. And the devil will sneak in and allow you to think that you are adding something. And God does use us in our walk. But the idea is is that we, of ourselves, on our own, without Christ, we can do nothing, we can offer nothing. It is only his kindness. And when you come across a passage like this and you see the kindness that is there, it will remind you, I didn't do anything for this. And I did not deserve it. In fact, I should not have it. And you will hesitate to lift your eyes towards heaven because you're not worthy. But if you go on to study that passage, you'll see exactly what you are. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ, seated in the heavenlies. How beautiful and wonderful. But you need to not think that that's what you deserve. Guard against that. Guard against that entitlement. Let me close by sharing with you one more illustration that I had with someone who was a beggar who was asking for money. It was in the Chicago area. I was there with my family. And you, when you walk down the streets, you come across all kinds of people that are, have their hand out, maybe have a cup, maybe they have a sad story. Some are playing some music, doing a dance. Some have a sign. And I can remember one situation vividly where there was an individual that encountered me. And the reason why it stands out is because he was trying to make a case for the fact that I had to give him something. Come on, man, was what he said. Come on, you, you can give something. Certainly. And he was trying to make his case. Give me something because I've got it coming. You've got something and I don't. And I'm telling you, you need to give that to me. This was the message that came. I think he was trying to intimidate a little bit. It's always interesting to have these conversations with the youth and with our kids. And why didn't we give something to that individual or to those dozen individuals that we passed as we walked down the sidewalk? And you can try to have a a conversation about, well, here's what I do with my charitable donations and here's where I make this and here's how I choose and how I give. But when that gentleman approached me and led me to a place where he wanted to try to convince me that I had to give him something, that's that kind of spirit that must be avoided when we approach God. It's that kind of spirit where God is looking down at us and thinking, okay, that guy's got something that he can add to me. Because you don't have anything to offer. 
for your eternal life, for your salvation. The kindness of God, and this should bring us back to that beautiful place where we started with. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you, make today the day. If you're allowing anything to sneak into your life that makes you think there's some entitlement, there's something better that's coming, you're not going to have the incredible joy that comes in this world unless you are living your life poor in spirit, a beggar that has nothing to offer. And when you understand how loved you are, then you will look at your Father and you will fall in love all over again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you blessed that you hear our prayers. As I open my mouth and we speak these, and I speak these words, you hear me because I have an intercessor, Jesus Christ. I thank you for your plan, your plan to save mankind. And I thank you that you did not come and, and, and go over the world looking for individuals that were great and wonderful, individuals that had something to offer, But I thank you that millions and millions have gotten to the place where they were, they had complete poverty of spirit, understood that they could add nothing. And God, I would pray right now, maybe for an individual that's been listening to this challenge today. And perhaps if there's one that's never accepted Christ as Savior, they had different ideas in mind of how to get to heaven, maybe by what they did maybe just some confusion, but they can see now that the price that was paid on the cross by your son, Jesus Christ, is enough to save them. And all they have to do as a beggar is reach out and say, I have nothing this day unless you give me your mercy. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm going to Ron to play through the stanza on the piano. As he's playing through, this is a chance for you to pray. Perhaps it's pray about something as far as walking in humility in this world. Maybe you want to ask God to save you. A prayer that sounds something like, God, I'm a sinner, and I thank you for sending Christ to die on the cross for my sins, and I ask you to forgive me now and make me your child. It's as simple as that. Take a moment to pray.